AERA Writing and Literacy SIG. This is Dr. Karis Jones um, introducing our episode, um, Contested Language. Um, the idea for this episode came back from a breakout room in 2021 um, during our business meeting. Um, we were in the room, current issues in literacy research to address race, equity, and inclusion and the role of the SIG, led by Dr. Jane Lammers and Dr. Lauren Kelly. Um, in this room, we talked about um, how valuable it would be to have a podcast episode with stories of writing and literacy scholars navigating contested language situations with research communities and or publishing spaces. Um, we know that this is a year later. Um, we've been trying to collect these stories, um, but I think that it takes a little bit of vulnerability to talk about um, something that's contested, um, something that you're not sure about um, or that, you know, where you're not sure what the right answer is, um, particularly on a podcast um, that's a, a very permanent record as opposed to a breakout room discussion um, or, or just a, a chat with friends. Um, so I, I want to say thank you to the scholars um, who shared what they thought, um, who are providing us with um, just ideas to, to grow with as a SIG, um, and I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Thank you. We'll hear from Dr. Lauren Kelly. As a researcher, something that I find myself challenged by linguistically in my work is the terms that I use when writing about the Black youth that I do work with, um, particularly around gender, right? So if I'm saying, um, you know, Marcus is a 10th grade Black man, right, um, or a Black boy, et cetera. I don't feel entirely comfortable using terms like boy and girl when referring to high school students. Um, because they're not children, right? And I feel like it infantilizes them. Um, and because what I'm writing about typically is their agency, right? They are agentive young people. It feels strange to use a term um, that infantilizes them, right? That makes them seem younger than they are um, or less independent or powerful than they are. Um, and in particular, the term boy, we know has a history of being used um, to disempower black men, right? Um, that if you're a black man and someone refers to you as boy, it's very intentional and it's to take away your agency, right? And to sort of wield power over you through language. Um, at the same time, there's also a history of the adultification of, you know, black youth, right? Um, and using terms or not even using terms, but treating them as though they are grown, right? That they are men, that they are women. Um, and in doing so, removing their innocence, right, removing their childhood, um, you know, denying their, their access to their own youth. Um, and so I find myself really stuck between these terms because none of them feel quite right. Um, and so, and of course, collectively, you know, I'll, I'll use terms like, um, you know, the students, um, you know, the youth, um, this group. Um, but when you're trying to, you know, describe individuals in the work and make sure that um, you know you are doing your due diligence in you know sharing their full you know full three-dimensional complex identities um, I do find myself sort of stuck between you know um, the the terms man men women women um, and girls and boys etc and so what I've been doing is using both um, when I read other people's work it seems like both terms are used or all these terms are used 
So I use both and I add a footnote, um, you know, in when I'm writing that says, both of these terms are used interchangeably because you know I don't want to do this and I also don't want to do this. Therefore, this is what we get. I don't think it's a perfect solution. Um, I'm thinking about this all the time and I'm super open to you know additional words or ideas that folks have about how to sort of resolve this, um, what I see as a linguistic challenge in this type of work. Next, we'll hear from Taryn Chu. Hi everyone, my name is Taryn Chu and I'm a PhD candidate in language and literacy education at the University of Georgia. Um, I'm very excited to talk about the topic of navigating contested language situations because it's a process that I constantly have to navigate through my scholarship and also my personal interactions with other people. Um, additionally, I strongly believe that language matters. Um, the language we use reveals our ideologies and beliefs and also our knowledge about the histories and lived experiences behind the term terminologies and languages that we use. Um, for example, thinking about um, the term BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and uh, other people of color versus terms such as minorities or people of color. Um, terms like minorities position people of color as the minorities, um, but we're not minorities, right? We're minoritized people. Um, and then BIPOC, it specifically emphasizes that the experiences, lived experiences and histories of Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color, such as the Asian community and the Latinx community, are inherently different. So um, it uh, talks about people of color, but it also emphasizes that our experiences are different. Also thinking about the function of the language that we use. Um, language use functions as a way to disrupt or perpetuate deficit thinking. For example, the term emergent bilinguals versus the term English language learners. The term English language learners really focus on a deficit perspective in the sense that um, it positions students who speak other languages at home um, as students who don't know English and are learning English. But the term emergent bilinguals really focuses on their bilingual abilities and their full linguistic repertoires, and it emphasizes that they are bilingual and not just English learners. So reflecting on my own processes of navigating the language and terminologies that I use, um, I remember when I first entered my PhD program, I took a class with Dr. Donna Alverman about literature reviews. In my proposed research question, I said that I wanted to work with Asian adolescents in content area classrooms. In her feedback from me, she challenged me to reconsider the term Asian and be specific about who I really wanted to work with. Um, her comments really hit me because, indeed, the term Asian is such a broad term representing people who are racialized as Asians in the U.S. and were definitely not a monolith. So as I took more classes with critical perspectives, I realized that my lived experiences and histories as a Chinese and East Asian woman is inherently different from South Asian and Southeastern Asian people. I hold more proxy privileges as a lighter-skinned Asian person from East Asia 
Hence, now, um, when I write about my positionality or when I write about my Chinese research partners, I deliberately use the term East Asian as opposed to just Asian. Also, through my deliberate and intentional language use, I want to emphasize the danger of essentializing any group of people. So really, um, when it comes to choosing what term I use for my work um, and my communication with other people, what I do is I think about what I want to express and then I think about specific terms that best represent my ideas and what I want to express. So I really prioritize my ideas and then think about the language that's appropriate to um, specifically and best represent the ideas. So yeah, like the language we use, the term terminologies that we use, it's very important work. I would argue that it's one of the most important things that us as scholars or public scholars need to engage in. Um, it's our ethical responsibility to do research about the terms and the language we use in our writings and other forms of, of our communication. This research can take the form of obviously reading scholarly articles and learning from other critical scholars. Um, it could also take the form of you know, going on Twitter or reading blogs from really dope people about their thoughts about um, different terminologies. And most importantly, this research can take the form of just listening, right? Listening to people from um, disabled communities, from the LGBTQ community, or from um, the Black community, Indigenous community, Latinx community, um, Asian community. Like listening to them and using what they prefer to be used, right? So, yeah, I think we need to normalize learning and unlearning in our writing and other forms of communication. And it's really our ethical responsibility and obligation and privilege to be able to choose what terms we want to use in our scholarship and communication. Finally, we'll hear from Dr. Tasha Austin. Actually, in my research is really um, looking at the manifestations of anti-Blackness in language education. And so I did the three paper route. So in terms of um, what I'm revising, um, one of my papers um, was recently published, but a second one has been under review and I'm in that back and forth right now, but it's, a, it's actually a beautiful process. I've never seen this before. I was actually assigned a mentor um, during the revision process. So it's probably the most idyllic experience I could ever describe to have a senior scholar um, asked me about like, would I really want this paper to do um, when so much of like, at least how I felt um, in the doctoral student doctoral candidate phase was like, churn them out and <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> I was very much like, I gotta get out of here, you know, not to rush, but to, um, to make sure that I wasn't, I guess, following all the threads. I always say like, I'm a kite who needs a string. So to, to, to rein it in um, and to have someone who's willing to talk you through some things to ensure that what you're doing is what you intended to do and you're not kind of following one of those ancillary threads has been a beautiful experience. So currently that's what I'm doing, revising paper two and really, really um, hoping to tap into my voice more um, than I have been, you know, in the past few years. But in terms of like, um, answerability, right? Um, and in terms of like, who are you writing for and who are you speaking with and who are you writing? You know, all of those questions that we've got to ask ourselves. Um, I've 
what's given me the most comfort is like having an orientation towards Africana because it seems when I read scholars out of that tradition, they sound like me. And that makes me feel better, you know, like um, earlier maybe in the program, like first years or so of, of pursuing a doctorate, like you read what you're given um, and that will continue to make you feel outside of yourself, completely disembodied from your work and wondering, can I bring this up, have this conversation with the people? Um, but once I began to really go off that beaten path and just really follow it through references and citations, because I didn't have like someone, um, uh, even in my committee, who was like Africana studies oriented, nothing. So I really had to search on my own and I got connected with folks at HBCUs and I got connected with folks who could give me a bit more guidance and once I began to read the June Jordan, Sylvia Winters of the world, I was like, oh, you know, Patricia Hill Collins, like, I didn't feel like the writing that I was generating was that off the wall. It, it certainly, Chris was like, oh, dang it, I thought I said something new. She said this in 72, you know, <laughs> like, I came across that a few times <laughs> of like, you know, um, I guess like uh, some of the most critical um, particularly Black scholars, their, their work is just not centered in our programs and whatnot. So like you don't realize that you're rehashing something that's already been said and done because you don't come across it unless you do your own digging. Um, but, you know, on an ancestral realm, my, co my community is huge. Like I'm in conversation with <laughs> so many folks and, and they, they push me along and they give me company and they give me comfort. Um, when I write, because I literally feel like I'm writing in community with the ancestors. Um, but in terms of actual folks, like particularly, you know, I'm also on unceded Lenape land, Lenny Lenape land, right? I'm over in Jersey and I don't really have like physical folks that I'm here writing with per se. Um, my social media uh, attempts to connect have been successful in different ways. Like my foremost mentors on the West Coast. Uh, shout out to Dr. Shea. Happy Tina. Uh, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't for her, um, I don't really know if I would have seen myself come through the full process of actually getting something out into the world. Um, but she was very patient with me. And that's what helped. Um, because, again, like coming out of a very like um, anti-Black writing experience, it's really hard to see yourself, right? Because you internalize a lot of that. You don't realize it. You don't realize how heavily you're policing yourself. Like I have a very, very like solid tendency to police my own writing, not my thinking so much, but the things I'll stop short of putting on paper. Um, mm -hmm. So to be able to like, I guess that's probably why I'm in community so much uh, in, in the abstract. Um, you know, with, with thinkers as opposed to feeling like I might be able to reach out and get to somebody. <laughs>